Got a question for you this morning. You can be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The question this morning is, have you been resurrected? Have you been resurrected? We are here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, but we need to ask the question whether or not that resurrection has included us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the words of Paul. We'll look at just the first four verses. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and, and this is it, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So as, as believers, those who have not believed in vain as believers, we commemorate and we celebrate Easter Sunday because the resurrection of Jesus tells us it declares that God is saying the work that Jesus completed on the cross was necessary and enough to cover our sin. He said it is finished. And he meant the work is completed and the work is done. Why did Jesus die for us? Well, he died for us because God so decreed that the penalty for sin was death. And we could not cover that payment. We were bankrupt. We couldn't cover the payment because we were sinners. And so Jesus who never sinned, who was the perfect God-man, Jesus was the only one who could pray the, pay the price on our behalf. And so we know that he died, we know that he was buried, but that could not be the end of the story. What good is a dead God? You know, many other faiths, many other religions have leaders, but they're all dead. Why, why is Christianity different? It's different because our salvation doesn't end with Jesus' death and burial. Jesus rose again. God is not dead. He was victorious over the penalty of sin. He was victorious over death and the grave. And because he was victorious over sin and death, if we are in him, we too have victory over sin and death and the grave. We will have eternal life with him. That's what he has promised, and that's what we're going to receive. That's why Easter Sunday is so important, and that's why true believers in Christ celebrate. Now, I asked you a question a few moments ago. I asked you, have you been resurrected? Let me, let me explain what I'm asking. Scripture tells us that, that one day everyone is going to be physically resurrected. Everyone. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 5. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, that's not just those who believe, he says all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the question I'm asking this morning is not, have you been resurrected physically? The question I'm asking this morning is, have you been resurrected spiritually? You see, God's word says that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin. Before a man comes to Christ, he is literally a dead man walking. It's only in surrender to Christ that we pass from death to life. And we saw a pic perfect picture of that this morning in the baptism of Caleb Baroy. You know, every time someone is baptized, we're reminded of the death, 
burial and resurrection of our Lord. That's the picture that we see in baptism, but it's also a reminder of how a person is truly saved. We must die to self. We can't go on, if we're in Christ, we can't go on living for self and living life our own way. The picture is that we are buried with Christ. His suffering and sacrifice covers us, and as we're buried in Christ, we crucify, we bury our old life, and then we're raised to living a new way with Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the key word today. He's Lord. It's a spiritual resurrection. That's why Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, words that you, most of you in this room know. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. What you saw this morning was a picture of what's already happened in Caleb's life at the moment he received Christ as Savior to forgive his sins and as Lord of his new life. It was a picture of that, that the old has passed away and the new has come. Well, it wouldn't surprise you for me to say I've been thinking about the message this morning for several weeks. And when a, when a pastor thinks about the message, his, his thought is turned to the audience. Who's going to be here? Who's going to hear that message? And it's particularly important on a day like this on Easter Sunday because you know you probably have people present who are not normally here. People who don't usually attend. They've come on this day, though. You, you've come on this day if you're not a normal attender, not just because it's a good thing to do to celebrate Easter. You've come not just because your family perhaps invited you to join them for worship before a big meal together. You're here, whether you realize it or not, because the Spirit of God drew you here. And the reason the Spirit of God drew you here is that He has a word for you this morning. I was at lunch on Monday with a, a couple of, of guys, and we were talking about a ministry opportunity, and as they were trying to bring me up to speed on the opportunity and, and who all was involved in it, they would ask me this question, well, do you know so-and-so? And, and I discovered with every inquiry, I found myself responding in one of three ways. It was either, no, I've never heard of him, or yes, I, I, I know the name, I know a, a little bit about him, or was, yes, I know him well. We have done some work together. We, we frequently touch base with each other. I talk to him often. We have lunch when, when we can. And I walked away from that lunch on Monday with some insight on, on my audience this morning, on who would be gathered here. You know, it's very rare any time the church gathers, it's very rare to have someone in that first group in attendance on a Sunday morning, someone who doesn't know Jesus at all. They're, they're not looking for him, so they wouldn't show up here. That's why those of us who know Jesus have to get outside these walls. We have to make his name known. We have to get his name in front of our, our family and friends and our neighbors and coworkers. That's our job. That's our responsibility because they're not going to come here. It's also very, um, or it is very normal on a Sunday to have people present in that third group, people who know him well. People who don't just know his name or something about him, but they have a personal relationship with him. They spend regular time with him. Uh, they do life with him daily. And many of you in this room, that's where you are. That's who you are. You're here week by week, and I'm very grateful for that. But this morning, my primary focus is on the second group. They know Jesus. They've heard his name, they, they've heard about him, they know some facts, they even have a level of respect or, or perhaps you would say some admiration for him. 
You know, when we, when we discuss leadership around here, we discuss or pray for or minister to these groups of people, we have, we have designations or names we use. Now, they're, they're not derogatory by any means. They just help us know about whom we're talking when we talk about the, the ministry we need to do and where people are in their spiritual journey. The first group we simply call unbelievers. They don't know him. They don't know about him. They don't have enough information to have come to saving faith. And when we talk about unbelievers, we talk about the work we must do to determine how we can make Jesus known to them. And again, we have to go to them. They're, they're not going to come to us. The last group we call Christ followers. They're not simply people who believe in God, who believe there's a God, who believe that Jesus was his son. They have accepted the fact that Jesus died for sinners, and specifically that he died for them. And they've not just accepted that fact, they have given their lives over to him and made the decision to let him control their lives. They live with him as ruler, or we use the word Lord, they live with him as the Lord of their lives. But the middle group is, is the primary focus of today's message, and I'll admit it's, it's kind of a tough group to define. They know who Jesus is. They've heard the name. They're, they're probably thankful that he died on the cross. They know something of the Bible, and they feel comfortable in a, somewhat comfortable in a church setting. And, and we call these people cultural Christians. That, that's not intended to be a label. It's just a, a description. And th there are a couple of reasons we use this term. The first is that a, a cultural Christian has grown up in a culture or an environment that is communicated to them. If they're basically a good person, then they're okay with God. But a cultural Christian, we call them that also because a cultural Christian is comfortable in the society or the culture where they live. And to progress any further in their relation with God might put them at odds with the culture. And they're not quite ready for that. That's, that's too radical for them. So, so hear me say this morning, a cultural Christian is not a bad person. They're not someone that, that Christ's followers or radical believers shun. They're, they're not someone that we're here this morning to put down or, or bash in any way. But the reality is there are many people in the room this morning that fall into this group. And I'm thankful you're here today. I truly believe that God has drawn you here to hear a word from him. And, and you may be someone who feels like, I, I've never felt like God has spoken to me before. Well, I'm praying today you hear his voice and you hear it very clearly. Now, let me put you at ease if that's the group that you're in this morning. Let me just put you at ease. I want you to hear from a couple of folks just like you, people who were uh, part of our church family. I think what they have to say may bring some clarity and understanding to what it means to be a cultural Christian. Let's watch the stories of Paul and Lisa. My name is Paul and I was a cultural Christian. At the age of six, um, I originally thought that I'd asked Jesus into my heart. Um, I was in church, grew up in church, grew up in the South, uh, Christian home. We were at church every time the doors were open. I lived that life that I thought I was a Christian until the age of 49. And throughout that time period, um, in church, I was a Sunday school teacher, deacon at another church, just did what I was supposed to do and what everyone knows you're supposed to do. Um, so I was at church listening to Dave preach and we were in that service and the Holy Spirit was just working on me. Um, the Holy Spirit was saying, Paul, you need to, 
you need to get this right. You've had questions throughout this entire time, over 40 years. Um, you need to nail down your salvation. And on the other side, I would hear another voice saying, Paul, you're fine. You nailed that down when you were six years old. Don't you remember that? What are people gonna think? You know, you've been living this life and, and now all of a sudden you're gonna go down the aisle and become a Christian. You're gonna ask Jesus into your heart. What are people gonna think? And then the other side would say, it doesn't matter what people think, Paul. You, you need to make this right. And so Dave was preaching. I wasn't really hearing anything he was saying. I was hearing the Holy Spirit talk to me during that entire service. When the service was over, I turned to my wife, Kathy, and I said, I need to go talk to Pastor Curtis. And she said, okay. She didn't know what it was about. We hadn't discussed it. Um, so I went and hunted down Pastor Curtis and we went into his office and he said, hey, what's up? And I said, you know, at that point, I was just overcome with emotion because the patience that, that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus has had with me over this, this time period. And so I told him my story. I said, I need to nail down my salvation. I need to do that today. And so we prayed, we shed tears, we prayed a couple weeks later for obedience in Christ. You know, I wanted to make my story known. And we had a baptism in the venue service uh, two weeks later, following through on that obedience in Christ. So I can tell you today that I'm 100% certain that I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm Lisa and I was a cultural Christian. I grew up in church my whole life. I even attended a small Christian school. And when I was 12 years old, I um, asked Jesus into my heart and I was baptized. But I just didn't live my life as I should. I was not reading my Bible, I wasn't praying, I just coasted through life. When I was 14, my dad passed away and I had prayed all the way up till he took his last breath for God to heal him. and just kind of rocked my faith because uh, he healed him in a different way than what I was hoping for. And I graduated high school, went to college, went to Washington Baptist, I was a Christian studies major, and I still wasn't praying as I should, wasn't reading the Bible as I should. It was probably about six years ago when I really started getting this feeling that I needed to question, or was questioning whether or not my faith was true or not. And I just kind of packed it away of, you've already done that, you've already been baptized, you've done that, you're good, everything's okay. And it wasn't until three years ago when I was, after Charlotte was born, it was one of those late night newborn feedings. The church was also going through experiencing God. And I had read the first chapter and I had cried out and asked God, I just need to know that you're there, that you hear me, that you're listening, and that you're there for me. And the next day, I had a college friend send me a message through Facebook. She said, I know this is gonna be weird, but you've been on my heart. And God told me to tell you that he's there, that he's listening, and that he loves you. And that's when I knew that God was real. When I started reading my Bible more and praying with more meaning. And then fast forward to about a month-ish ago, I started having the same feelings, the same doubts of whether or not I was truly saved at 12 or not. And I um, had talked to husband Eric about it, had 
talked about it with my best friend Sarah, and then I talked to my D group, just trying to work it through, and they suggested that I probably need to go talk to Dave, just kind of unpack everything. And so I did, and I'd say that I am saved. It was three years ago with that midnight moment, and it's nice to not have that doubt anymore. I have the solid faith and the confidence and the peace that I am saved, I know where I'm going, and that he is listening to me. Paul and Lisa were both faithful, regular church attenders. They both grew up in church. You heard Paul say he even served as a Sunday school teacher and as a deacon. Lisa attended a Christian college, even majored in Christian studies. But neither of them had a personal relationship with Jesus. Neither one of them had given lordship of their life over to Jesus. Paul, Paul was trying to do good things. He was doing good things, but even our service in the church doesn't make us acceptable to God. Lisa had, had no connection with God. There was no personal connection there. She knew uh, the things of God. She knew about him, but, but she had no personal relationship with him. And I so appreciate Paul and Lisa being willing to share their stories and help us understand that being in church and, and knowing about God and the things of God doesn't make you a true believer. And I'm certainly thankful that they were more concerned about what God thought they both struggled with what will people think, but they recognized what God thought and their relationship with him was more important than anything. And so they got that right and they were willing to share their stories. Now, let me, let me try to explain for you a cultural Christian's worldview and some defining characteristics. And then we're gonna talk about what a cultural Christian needs to know. The first thing to understand about a cultural Christian is most of them have grown up in the South. Why do I say that? Well, because the South is the Bible Belt. If you've ever lived in the North, north of the Mason-Dixon line, especially farther north than that, you know that there's not a lot of a Judeo-Christian culture. But in the South, culture is strongly influenced by Judeo-Christian values. And in the South, in this culture, it's still acceptable somewhat to talk about spiritual matters. And it's okay to be known as someone who attends church that's even encouraged. And many cultural Christians, in addition to growing up in the South, have grown up in relatively uh, conservative, even Christian homes, and many of them have uh, a family line that has been traditionally Christian. Cultural Christians are good people. They, they serve their community. They're typically conservative. A cultural Christian makes a great uh, friend or a great neighbor or coworker. A cultural Christian believes in God. Now, what does it mean exactly they believe in God? Well, they believe God exists. They believe that God created the world and that God keeps watch over human affairs and human life. They believe that God uh, wants us to be kind to others, to be nice and good and fair. Incidentally, most other world religions teach that as well. They believe that God's involvement in a person's life is not necessary unless he's needed to resolve a problem. In other words, day to day, they've got it figured out. They've got life. They don't, they don't need God. And most importantly, a cultural Christian believes that God is going to let good people go to heaven when they die. So cultural Christians are not irreligious. They believe in God. They know who Jesus is. Um, they admire Jesus, but they don't need him in their day-to-day -day life. They, they can make it without him. They would be what one author has called a fan, but they're not a, a follower. 
Cultural, cultural Christians believe they are fine with God, and the reason they believe that, they think they're on good terms with God because they're familiar with church and with Christian things, and so they believe God accepts them because they basically have a good uh, moral code. Now, that all sounds good to a lot of people. They sound like pretty good people, but that's a pretty serious misunderstanding of the gospel message. In fact, I would tell you this morning, that is a deadly misunderstanding of the gospel message. If I asked this morning to all of you gathered in this room, if I asked, do you believe in God? I'm sure every hand would go up, but you know what? That's probably pretty much true as well for the majority of people outside these doors. A better question would be this, what kind of God do you believe him to be? You see, a lot of people believe that God is the big man upstairs. They believe he's very benevolent. He overlooks our sin and he's there to, to serve and to bless us. Many people's view of God is more like a, a good luck charm or, or a mascot or, or a genie perhaps. That is not the God of the Bible. Far too long, you know, the pendulum often swings in the church just like it does in culture. For far too long, the pendulum has swung from talking about who God really is. The pendulum has swung to most preachers focusing solely on the love and the mercy of God to the exclusion of his perfect holiness and wrath. And I'll tell you why that's happened. We've been too worried about people not coming back. I realize with what I have to say this morning, some of you may not come back next Easter. We worry that we're going to offend people or, or, or be seen as, as judgmental and unloving. I don't want people to see me as judgmental and unloving. I'm certainly not that if you know me. But you know what? I worry more about what you'll think if I let you spend eternity in hell. That's a greater concern to me. The Bible says you and I need to believe in a holy God, and in fact, we should fear him. The beginning of a, a proper understanding of the gospel is knowing that no one is good enough for God. Your goodness is not going to get you into heaven. And you might respond to that as you're thinking right now in your own mind and heart, well, I'm not an atheist. I, I went to Bible school as a child. I go to church on Easter or Christmas. Sometimes I even go on Mother's Day. I'm a good person. I have morals and I treat others right. Well, none of that makes you okay with God. None of that earns you a home in heaven. You can't be okay with God, and you can't earn a home in heaven because like all of us, you're a sinner whose heart is full of evil. You need to take an intense look at the God of the Bible. Yes, he is merciful. Yes, he is loving, but he will not overlook our depravity. He doesn't just give us a pass because we're good people. He's a holy God, and when we truly look into his holiness, we should be devastated by our own wickedness and depravity and our rebellion against him. We, all of us in this room, all of mankind are wretched sinners. We deserve judgment, we deserve wrath, we deserve torment, we deserve suffering in hell. None of us, not a single one of our race is deserving of the grace and mercy of God. Listen to Paul's words in, in Romans chapter three as he quotes from the Old Testament. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. When you understand and comprehend the perfect holiness of God, then you understand you can never be good enough on your own. You can't do enough good things to be accepted by God. Newsflash, 
you can't attend church enough to be accepted by God. I want you to hear me clearly. Two things here. Number one, I don't care if you're here every Sunday and you sing every song and you listen attentively and you even take notes. I don't care how much you go to church and how involved you are in church. Going to church does not make you right with God. It does not make you a child of God. Listen, you can sleep in your garage every night for the rest of your life and that won't make you a car. But here's the second thing I want to say to you. If you're a car, the garage is a good place to be. Listen to me. If you say that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you claim to be a true follower, and you don't gather on a regular basis, not once or twice a year, you don't gather on a regular basis with other believers, you might want to reevaluate your commitment. If you don't like being around God's people, if you don't see the benefit of gathering for worship and for for fellowship and and encouragement, if you don't have any desire to spend time in the Word of God and to pray and to seek Him and to grow in your faith, you might be deceiving yourself if you think you're a believer. And I'm just telling you that. That's not my opinion. That's what the Word clearly says. And listen, I, I, I know this morning this is a hard word. I know people want to come to church, especially on Easter Sunday, and hear a wonderful message that's encouraging, and you want to leave feeling good about yourself and, and happy and loved. But today, as we think about Jesus' death and resurrection for us, we cannot minimize his suffering and the reason he suffered. We cannot cheapen the blood that he shed by thinking we're good enough, by thinking that that we're fine with God because we come and blow him a kiss on Easter Sunday. You have to understand the depth of our sinful condition. Good people do not go to heaven. Good people do not go to heaven. You know why? Because there are no good people. You're not good. I'm not good. We're all wretched and hopeless and helpless. And I'm not trying to beat you down or or make you feel bad about yourself. I'm trying to help you understand biblically, there are going to be a lot of shocked people in hell because they thought they were good. They thought that God was good and pleased with them. Good people don't go to heaven. Righteous people do. And our only hope for righteousness is Jesus. Listen, if good people could go to heaven, why did Jesus have to die? And you understand Jesus died the most horrific form of death. Jesus was beaten so badly that that scientists, physical scientists today, would look at what happened to him and say he never should have made it to the cross. He was beaten so badly, and then he went to the cross and died the most horrible form of death known to mankind. In fact, we get the word excruciating. It comes in Latin. It comes from the word for the cross. Why did he have to go through all that if good people go to heaven? You see, until you understand your need for Jesus, you're never going to come to the point of saving faith. You have to look past your perceived goodness, your own impression of yourself, and understand that that is not God's impression, and you have to see the depths of evil in you. And I'm going to tell you, when someone truly sees the depths of evil in them, they throw themselves at the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy. 
They, they can't believe when they see the depths of evil in their own life that Jesus would possibly want to save them. And they throw themselves to deceit and they confess their sin. They confess their own self-righteousness and they repent. And they surrender and they make Jesus Lord of life. And then the power of the resurrection of bringing life from death, that's what changes them. That's what makes them a new creature. So what does it mean to be resurrected spiritually? How, how do you move from being a, a cultural Christian to a true Christ follower? You've got to reject your own self-righteousness and you have to receive the righteousness of Christ. You, you stop trying to be good enough and trying to earn your way into God's favor. You come to the point of recognizing and understanding you need a savior, that Jesus died for you, that he suffered, that he died an excruciating death because you can't be good enough. And there's nothing you can do to be good enough. So you have to recognize your sin and your need for a savior, but then there's a, a second thing. And it's not really a second thing, it's part of the same decision, same process. When you come to Jesus to save you from sin, you have to surrender to him as Lord. Jesus cannot be your savior if you will not make him Lord. What am I saying? What I'm saying is this, you can't say, Jesus, forgive me my sin and give me a home in heaven, but for now, let me live life my way. That's not biblical. Jesus saves those who surrender themselves completely to him. What, what do I mean by surrender yourself to him? Well, you, you give up your rights. You, you pledge your life to serve the one who's now your master. That means you live to please him. That means that you do what he says, that you obey. You let him call the shots. He's in complete control. And if you see yourself this morning as I have defined a cultural Christian, it's really important that you get this. You don't get to ignore him and just call on him when you're in trouble. That's not why God exists. That's not why he made you, just to be your, your person who gets, uh, gets you out of trouble or deals with your issues. Is he there for us? Absolutely. But you can't call on him when you're in trouble when you don't know him. You, you can't have a savior without a Lord. Those things are together. They're, they're not separated in Scripture. And we've seen it that way for so long. Well, you just need to pray a prayer and invite Christ into your life so he can forgive your sins and give you a home in heaven. You know, and then later when you grow up a little bit and you're through sowing wild seeds and you can live like God wants you to live. No, that's not biblical. He's Savior and he's Lord. Let me close with two, two short verses this morning. You don't have to look them up. They'll be on the screen. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21, this is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And then Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's interesting, you see the word Lord in there twice. He doesn't say, not everyone who calls me Lord, he doesn't say, why do you call me Lord? It's Lord, Lord. Why? Because it's very emphatic. People are calling that out to him as if it's just the most wonderful. Oh, Lord, Lord. But the problem is they're calling out these incredibly sobering words that Jesus spoke He's clarifying a true follower, not by how he calls out, but by how he lives. They're calling out, Lord, Lord, but there's no corresponding action. There's no evidence in their life. What does he say? You, you call me Lord, but you're not doing the will of my Father. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. How come you don't do what I tell you? 
You see, there's a problem when you call Jesus Lord, but you continue in habitual sin. Now, I'm not saying a true follower of Christ doesn't sin. We still sin. We're human. We're flesh. We're made of clay. But if you're a true follower of Christ and you sin, the Holy Spirit of God lives in a true follower, and you can call it guilt, whatever you want, but he will convict you, and he will keep convicting you until you let go of that sin and you bring it to the Lord and you confess it. If you can go right on and live in habitual sin and never have any qualm about it, he's probably not your Lord. You can't call him, you can't say, Lord, Lord, if you don't obey his word. We're called to obey this word if we're true followers of Christ. You can't call him Lord, but live every day with virtually no thought of him. And that's what many people do. They never give him thought Sunday to Sunday. You can't call him Lord if he's not a part of your life plan and goals. You're planning your life without consulting the Lord. Jesus said he's not your Lord if you're not doing the will of Father. And frankly... A lot of people who claim to know Christ don't know the will of the Father because they've never sought it out. They may be good, may be moral, might do a lot of religious things. Paul did a lot of religious things. He was a Sunday school teacher and a deacon, but he was doing those things in his own power. He was doing those things to earn the favor of God, and that does not work. If you've truly received Jesus as Savior and Lord, you've given up on yourself. You've given up on your own goodness. You've given up on your ability to do enough stuff to make God happy. When you truly receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, you recognize your self-righteousness is wicked and it is sinful in the eyes of God and you ask for forgiveness and you surrender yourself to full obedience to the Lordship of Christ. A person who's a true Christ follower knows that Jesus has died for him and he's committed himself to live for Jesus. You and I are not good people. We need a miracle of God to be accepted by God and to have a home in heaven. And so the question this morning is, have you been resurrected? Are you a new person in Christ? Is it only your lips that proclaims that Jesus is Lord? Or is it evident in your life? Resurrection is not just a historical event that we come to commemorate. Resurrection is a life-changing, life-altering event, and the question today is, has it truly changed you?